Welcome to Not Just a Sports Report. It is always bigger in Texas. Welcome to Not Just a Sports Report. Let's get straight amongst it. Uh, I assume you have a small idea of what you're about to listen to, but if you're just going in blind, you haven't read the title, hopefully you like UFC. UFC live tomorrow morning Australian time from Austin, Texas. It is always bigger in Texas. I've never been, but... So I hear. Uh, So I'm expecting a big night of fights. We've got a stacked card. Now, of course, headlined by two massive lightweight fights. The co-main event, originally going to be Dan Hangman Hooker, who I'm a massive fan of. We're both from the same part of the world. Same city in New Zealand, so he's one of my favorite fighters. That would have been an epic fight. Uh, But we get Jalen Turner up against Bobby King Green. I'll talk about Jalen Turner in... Or a bit later in the podcast because, yeah, doing my due diligence, watching tape, all my study, watching interviews, the pre-fight interview, Jalen Turner didn't really want this fight. Not in a way that he was scared. He wasn't that keen for this fight. So I found it really interesting because he was talking about how, I mean, he's just here to do his job. Like he really, I don't know, I'll get to it. We'll talk about that later. And of course, the main event, Benil Dariush ranked fourth, up against Armin Sarukian, hoping to break in to the top five. Uh, you've got Gaethje, you've got Islam Markashev, uh, Markashev most likely taking on Oliveira next. So whilst all this goes down, I mean, winner of this is right amongst that championship shot frame. Massive main event. I'm going to be going through each fight. I'm going to try to keep it relatively quick today. Going to give my predictions little bit of a preview for the fight as well and then I will be back tomorrow uh, during the card the podcast will come out about an hour or so after the Austin card has actually wrapped up thoughts and comments my live reactions to the card today uh, giving predictions it's really all about asking some questions tomorrow's podcast we have the answers I'll be watching the card we'll be going through it in real time and yeah Something to look forward to. So we're doubling up next two days, two UFC podcasts, this the first of two. Only one fight scratched uh, once we actually got to fight week. Melk Costa and Steve Garcia, which would have been a fun fight. Steve Garcia is ill. I wish him all the best. I'm fortunate for Melk Costa as well, who will miss out on a paycheck here. So pretty annoying through no fault of his own. Everyone made weight, even Jared Gooden. So everyone has made weight. So no issues on the scales. Why don't we just get right amongst it? So buckle up, saddle up, I guess you could say cowboy, because it's always bigger in Texas. I'll, I'll park that now. I'm not just going to keep saying that throughout the podcast. But welcome aboard, saddle up. We are getting amongst it. UFC Predictions Podcast. 
women's flyweight action opening the proceedings in Austin this weekend. One of my favorites in the division, Veronica Hardy, back in the mix, taking on a prospect uh, that I actually believe has quite a high ceiling. In fact, I'm not willing to put a ceiling on her. That being none other than Canada's own Jamie Lynn Horth. A timely appearance uh, with a big Toronto card just around the corner. And uh, now these two ladies have actually trained together before, so there is a link. Uh, pretty friendly in the lead up. No one, you know, coming out making any comments, saying they dislike each other. Uh, seems like a really healthy respect between these two ladies. Veronica Hardy up against Jamie Lynn Horth, uh, with Horth dropping back down to her more natural weight class of flyweight after picking up a win in her UFC debut up at bantamweight. Whilst for Veronica Hardy, she ended a quite a lengthy layoff and defeated the Ultimate Fighter winner Juliana Miller last time out. Seems like the time away, uh, which was really kind of circumstances outside of her control, uh, but seems like the extended time away for Veronica Hardy has actually really paid dividends for her. Tale of the Tape, uh, Veronica Hardy, formerly known as Veronica Macedo, of course married to her trainer, or I believe they're married, uh, to her trainer Dan Hardy, a massive fan of both. In fact, on pay-per-view weeks, when I'm really dialed in, you know, into watching tape, interviews, everything like that, one of the podcasts I love to listen to to get some extra insight is Full Reptile Collective. So Dan Hardy, Veronica Macedo, huge fan. They're both incredibly funny uh, in terms of when they're on the podcast together. And Veronica particularly makes me laugh a lot. She'll do things like merge fighters' names. You have Nasrat Hakparast, uh, which she kind of just merged into Nasparat, I believe it was, Nasparat, and a few other ones like that. So from a personal note, Veronica Hardy, I am such a huge fan. Now, I usually don't let my personal kind of bias and who I'm cheering for influence uh, my picks. But as far as who I'm cheering for, definitely Veronica Hardy. 7-4 and 1 record coming into this one. And the 28-year-old Venezuelan, uh, she's got a lot of skills, especially on the ground. She's quite dangerous. Uh, now, she fights out of Nottingham, England, as I mentioned, under Dan Hardy, who was in her corner uh, during that last fight. Now, for Veronica, she lost her first three UFC fights, uh, but since that point, with a huge spell in between, she's two from three. Uh, now, I mentioned the layoff. Three years, in fact. So we didn't see her in the UFC for three years. She comes back earlier this year, uh, defeats Juliana Miller. Excuse me for that. Uh, I'm just going to continue. Sorry. Sorry for that. Fucking rookie error. What a rookie. Uh, but yeah, beats Juliana Miller, who actually had quite a bit of hype behind her. And listening to some interviews with Veronica, she's got more self-belief than ever. Now she's accrued some experience. And if she can get the win here, and let's not forget last time she was kind of matched up with someone that the UFC were looking to create a star out of, in a way, if that makes sense. And it's kind of the same here. Now, Jamie Lynn Horth hasn't won the Ultimate Fighter, uh, but they're kind of giving Veronica 
really fucking tough opponents. They're not holding back and they're not giving her a road that's super easy. Easy, you know, not, I mean, no fucking road in the UFC is easy, but you know, like just a bit of like a Paddy Pimblet treatment where you make a considered effort to try and match make them in a way uh, that will make them shine. Veronica's kind of been the opponent on the other side of that, where UFC maybe even still salty about Dan Hardy and his departure. It just kind of like, ah, oh, fuck it, let's, let's give her really tough opponents. So it's a big one for Veronica Hardy, because if she wins this, it really does force the matchmaker's hands to advance her to around that top 15 mark. Maybe not uh, immediately, considering the depth of the division, but Veronica Hardy, if she can pick up a win here, uh, massive for her trajectory and overall career. So really excited uh, as a fan, but when I take my fan hat off, and I'm also a fan of her opponent, to be quite frank, Jamie Lynn Horth. I believe she's the real deal. Trust me, I just spent the last half an hour sitting on the couch eating Doritos. I am a white belt in jiu-jitsu, uh, so I can tell a fucking elite talent and a great fighter when I see one. And I believe Jamie Lynn Horth is just that, 33-year-old Canadian, and she's undefeated, 6-0. and And now undefeated, you know, it, it holds a bit of polish. It adds to your stocks, but I don't believe that's everything. Uh, but for Jamie Lynn, she would have had more fights. The thing was, outside of the UFC, no one was taking that fight. So she was one of those operators people just tried to steer clear of. And someone who, maybe even before she felt she was ready to come into the UFC picture, not getting opponents on the regional scene, kind of forced her hand. So here she is. I believe she's up to the task. Three wins by knockout. She also has two rear naked choke submissions on her resume. And yeah, coming off a UFC debut victory, upper weight class over Haley Cowan. Now for Jamie Lynn Horth, as of late, she's been training with Loopy Godinez. Uh, now that's not a full-time thing, but she helped Loopy prepare for her last fight. And in terms of training partners, that's a fucking fantastic one. I think, like I said, one of the biggest strengths for Veronica Hardy is her grappling game. Uh, so for Jamie Lynn Horth to spend some time with Loopy Godinez, great time to try and test that out, uh, the grappling defense and what you're doing in certain situations. Uh, because of course, Horth and Hardy have trained together in the past, but that was years ago. And they weren't like at the same gym full time, day in, day out. So there's an association, but it's a loose one. So it's not like they know each other's games inside and out. And with all the time between now and then, back in the past, they've both been improving. So I don't think either lady would lean too much on their past experiences training. Uh, but when I do look at the training side, I think Horth training alongside Lupi Godinez recently, really, really good for her uh, in terms of preparing for this matchup. Uh, Jim, Jamie Lynn Horth trains at the Sound Martial Arts. And I wrote in my notes, tough assignment for anybody in the flyweight division. And I genuinely believe that. I think if she wins here, and starts to progress forward, it could be the same case as regional where 
she finds it tricky uh, to get matchups. But I have said in the past, women's flyweight division is popping off. It's one of my favorites, men or women. Stacked. Manon Fior, I'm a huge fan of. Obviously, you've got Grasso, Shevchenko, Talia Santos, Aaron Blanchfield. Another one of my personal faves, uh, King Casey O'Neill. There's plenty more. So I'm a huge fan of what's going down at flyweight right now. And whilst neither of these ladies are in that top 15 championship discussion mix right now, this is one of those fights. Some are more important than other, uh, others in terms of progression. You have your apex fights where you're fighting, you know, decent competition, but there is a bit of a discrepancy. This one, they're very evenly matched. Both are popular. Like, Veronica's more popular with the crowd. Uh, and Jamie Lynn Horth undefeated. So from a marketing perspective, which UFC loves, I mean, that writes itself. So either way, there's going to be a lady come out of this fight as a genuine star in the division with the chance to then uh, work toward the rankings. So massive fight for both ladies' careers. Uh, what goes down? I'm interested to know. Uh, I'm going to say this goes the distance, but for a little while I was thinking Jamie Lynn Horth by submission. She also has hands, does Jamie Lynn. Three wins by knockout. And I guess my personal fan bias does creep into this one because I'm going with Jamie Lynn Horth, uh, but I'm going with decision because I don't want to see Veronica get, uh, Veronica get stopped, essentially because I'm a fan. So do take note, there is a little bit of bias in the selection, uh, but I am going to go against my favorite, and I'm going to go with Jamie Lynn Horth. So let us lock it in. The first prediction of Austin, women's flyweight, I am taking Jamie Lynn Horth by decision. Next up, Terman Gooden. Uh, now, that last fight, because I'm a fan of both ladies, I wrote quite extensive notes. For this one, Wellington Terman, Jared Gooden, uh, I just wrote five things. I was like, I, I'm going to do this one quite quickly. Wellington Terman, okay, what have I got first? Teixeira MMA, trains under Glover Teixeira, which also means he's been putting in the work with Alex Pereira. And now Wellington Terman, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is his specialty. But there's been times where he hasn't quite been able to put it together from a mixed martial arts perspective, where he's this amazing grappler. But when you bring in the facet of striking and all these other elements, he hasn't quite been able to impose himself. He was fighting at middleweight, has made the drop down to welterweight. Our last fight was against Randy Brown, lost by decision, but I rate Randy Brown highly. And I think Terman's starting to show some adjustments to his game. Uh, but in the notes, to Teixeira MMA, that is a big one. Striking and grappling, both going to come into play in this fight. Terman already, grappling is his realm. Now working alongside Glover Teixeira, <laughs> that's not going to make your grappling worse. That's for sure. Training your striking with Alex Pereira? Absolutely. Like, even Sean Strickland, who spent a bit of time with Pereira, in that fight against Abis Magomedov, 
saw a few adjustments and things that worked. So for Wellington Terman, that is a big point for me here in his fight against Jared Gooden, uh, because Wellington hasn't had an easy road. He hasn't really been picking up the wins or the consistency that he would like. But the gym factor, so that was one of my notes to share at MMA. Jared Gooden, I wrote weight misses. That was the first thing uh, that came to mind. It's his second stint in the UFC. Uh, and much like Terman, just hasn't been able to string any level of consistency together uh, in the UFC. And that's not being critical. That's just the kind of the way I see it from the outside looking in. Uh, congratulations to Jared Gooden, though, because he has made weight for this one. Uh, but this one... I feel like it has a bit of win or go home about it. That was my final note, win or go home. And I never want to see people lose their jobs. Like I don't really like talking about it. But these guys, where they're kind of at in the UFC right now, the loser could be out the door. And that's a reality. I don't know what their contract situation is. Maybe they got another couple of fights. But this has that vibe about it where the loser... That could be uh, Sayonara from the UFC. Whilst for the winner, not just a win, a confidence boost, and you can build on that. This is a spotlight card. Uh, so there is plenty at stake in this one, potentially these men's livelihoods. So I think there could be a serious finish factor in this one. I think Gooden going to be coming out looking to knock Terman uh, to the mat, finish him with strikes. For Terman, I'd be silly not to try and utilize the grappling submission game. I'm going with Wellington Terman, but the majority of Jared Gooden's losses have been by decision. So not an easy guy to finish. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, even though I did research. From memory, I, I don't know if Gooden's actually ever been submitted. I think he had maybe seven losses, six of those by decision. So yeah, I'm going to go with Terman. To share MMA, I think that plays a big part, who he's training with. And he's made adjustments. He's making improvements. And yeah, it's just respectfully for Terman. The test here is beat Jared Gooden. Prove that you really do belong here in the UFC. So I'm going to take Wellington Terman by decision. Hoss fest, hoss fest, hoss fest. We got two big fellas in a big old hoss fest. I do not envision this one going the distance. Light, heavyweight action, like I said, big fellas. Adolfo Balato, 11 and 2, 27 years old. He is going to be taking on a man who, funnily enough, crazily enough, is also 27. Battle of the 27 year olds. I'm 27, uh, but these guys would fucking kill me. They would absolutely destroy me. Ihor uh, Potiera, the duelist. We've seen a little bit of Ihor. Adolfo Bellato, you may not have seen, unless you're an avid Dana White's Contender Series fan. So yeah, light heavyweight Bellato Potiera. Uh, this will be a pretty quick prediction as well. Let's start, though, by having a look at the tail of the tape. Uh, as far as reach, 6 centimeter reach advantage for Bellato. Uh, speaking of Adolfo Bellato, he is 27. 
I just can't get over that, apparently. He's from Brazil. Woot woot. Um, trains at Team Noguera, or Noguera, which is pretty boss. You want to talk about training under a fantastic team? Look no further. Professional record is really interesting. 11 wins, 2 losses. Both losses for Bellato to Vitor Petrino, who is not just a UFC fighter, but is actually making waves at 205 pounds. He's been giving a really strong account of himself. So those losses don't age too poorly. But yeah, that is interesting. The two losses in his career to the same opponent who he himself is in the UFC. Uh, They were both knockout losses as well. The second loss was on Contender Series uh, a couple of years ago. So Bellato had already been knocked out by Petrino. They meet on Contender Series. Petrino does it again, gets into the UFC. And for Bellato, well, he had to earn his stripes, work his way back. Uh, He did get his redemption on the most recent season of Dana White's Contender Series just a couple of months ago. Had a second round technical knockout victory, and that got him the contract. And now in between, Bellato spent some time at LFA. And what I found really interesting, particularly when you look across the cage uh, to his opponent in Ehor, the duelist, is Bellato went five rounds in the LFA. Uh, so looking at his cardio, like it wasn't, like an apparent strength where I was like wow this guy has phenomenal cardio but I was like okay his output like where he's at in the last couple of rounds he still had plenty left to give very interesting when you have a look at Ihor Patiera and at a couple of occasions you know it's that first 10 minutes he's already in a bit of strife in terms of his strength and conditioning and again that's coming from a bloke who eats Doritos my strength and conditioning uh, is awful. But Potiera definitely going to need to work on that. And I thought that was uh, a really key mention that Bellato went five rounds. Now, highlight stats for Bellato. Six wins by knockout, four by submission. So 10 of his 11 wins have come inside the distance. Eight of those in the first round. And this is his UFC debut. He's made it to the big time. Up against Ihor Potiera, who himself earned a contract through Contender Series. Uh, he was a couple of years ago as well. And I remember when he burst on the scene, very exciting prospect, crazy knockout power, not the strongest level of competition by any means uh, as he led himself into the UFC. But yeah, just crazy exciting potential. Now, 15 first-round finishes for Patera. Nine wins by knockout, six by submission. So he's this wild finisher, as is Bellato. Even if you don't know who these guys are, I'll tell you one thing for free. This is going to be a bloody fun fight to watch. Uh, but Patera arrived in the UFC, plenty of hype, took on Nikolai Paws Negu Mariano. Yep, and yeah, you got absolutely crunched. I remember because I went for Ihor in that fight. Like I said, I had quite high hopes for him, but the cardio let him down and Nikolai, Nikolai floored him, like did a, did a number on him. Then we see Ihor Potiera up against Shogun Rua. I went for Ihor again, but 
that was just because Shogun was... Shogun was at the end. Like, he just... This was his retirement fight, if you, if you know what I mean. Like, he had fucking given so much of his body and mind and just everything to the sport, and he had reached that final fight. Whereas Pateria, young, fresh, something to prove. So he gets the knockout win over Shogun in that fight. He celebrates. A lot of people didn't like that. Then he gets matched up with Carlos Ulberg and gets very easily accounted for by uh, Carlos, who, again, one of my personal favorites, both from Auckland, New Zealand. So I have a vested interest in Carlos. I did not go for Ihor in that fight. But interesting to note at UFC level, if you take away the Shogun Rua fight, which respectfully, I think a lot of us know what the vibe of those kind of fights are. And there was the opportunity for Shogun to win, but it was pretty much there. I don't know. On a platter feels very disrespectful to say because Shogun Rua is a fucking legend and Ihor hasn't, you know, even come close to accomplishing half of what Shogun's done. But at the end of his career, that's essentially, you know, you're taking on a guy who's sore and probably very tired. And when he hasn't taken on guys who are in that position, when he's taken on guys who are at their peak and really in their prime, Ihor has been easily accounted for. So there are question marks going into this, but gee whiz. Bilato. Bilato, I think, in terms of competition, probably a step down from Negu, Mariano, and uh, Carlos Ulberg. So this is the bounce back for Ihor. If he comes out, gets the big finish, he already has some name value through that uh, Shogun win. They can build on that. But Bilato is hungry, and I'm going for Bilato. Why? Cardio factor. What I have seen from Ihor is that if this fight gets out of the first round, unless, which is a very real possibility, given that they do fighters do training camps and things like that and work on their weaknesses, but unless Ihor has made massive changes around his cardio and ability in fights, Bellato, I just think, in a heavy-handed, pretty chaotic affair, he's going to be there for longer if that makes sense. He's going to have more gas in the tank. Uh, so I, th- I see these guys throwing pretty heavy. There is a big chance the duelist could catch Bellato. Of course, both Bellato's losses by knockout. But I'm going Adolfo Bellato. And what swings me, like I said, the cardio. I think this one, very exciting first five minutes. If we go into the second round, that's where I think Bellato takes control. And somewhere in that 15 minutes, I trust Bilato's emphatic finishing style to get it done. And I think he'll just finish too fast over the top of a tiring Ihor Pateria. So we'll have to check that one out, see how it goes. But let's lock it in. Hoss Fest. Hashtag Hoss Fest. Hadolfo, Hadolfo. Sorry, my goodness. Hadolfo Bilato. What method? Uh, by knockout or technical knockout, I think we're going to see a hoss fest and I'm going to back my boy, Adolfo. Fourth fight of the card, but who is counting? 
Uh, I quickly want to circle back. Firstly, Drakkar Close, Joe Selecki, lightweight division. That's that's what we're in for here. Big night for the lightweight division, including these two lads. Uh, but circling back, how I said earlier, Jamie Lynn Horth, Veronica Hardy, a lot of respect, very friendly. No dramas in the lead up. Well, humongous dramas at the weigh-in. Humongous. Oh, just so humongous. Um, Drakkar Close, Joe Selecki, when they went to face off, put the hand out. A bit of respect, a handshake. I want to shake his hand, damn it. Uh, and then Drakkar Close. Just very subtle. It happened very quickly. And it's not humongous. I was just, just joshing about that. But Drakkar Close was like, nah. Not fucking shaking a hand. Shook Dana White's hand, and then he kind of had the hand out for the handshake with Joe Selecki. And he's like, nah, I'm not shaking a hand. And then he fucking posed, aggressively posed. And I was like, shit, yeah. My excitement level for this fight just went up. Uh, but I've done my notes. I've done my preparation. Sometimes the lead-up is wild uh, in terms of what it can throw up. And sometimes it makes me think about changing my prediction because I'll give you a spoiler before I get into this one I'm taking Drakkar close but I honestly thought about changing when I saw the handshake thing is that stupid probably yeah probably very stupid uh but I don't know I don't know I'm just like has that you know Joe Selecki is very good but has that handshake snubbing into an aggressive pose you know now now all of a sudden Selecki's like, fuck, I want to submit you more than I did walking in here. Which is kind of already the plan, but now, motherfucker, you're going to pay for that aggressive posing. Shake my hand, damn it. So yeah, my excitement level for this one has gone up. Uh, I'm not going to change the pick to Selecki, but if he comes out and he fucking really gets stuck into his work, just remember what you heard here, the fucking the handshake. I... It caught my eye. It caught my eagle eye. Uh, tail of the tape, Drakkar Close, 13-2-1 record. Very similar for Joe Selecki, 13-3 record. Five years between them, Drakkar Close, 35, Joe Selecki, 30. Uh, both guys the same height. Small reach advantage for Joe Selecki. Uh, but I tell you what, he used that extra reach to extend the handshake and Drakkar Close... He fucking showed his reach with a seriously aggressive pose, which did include his arms being extended. Cannot get over this whole handshake fiasco. For me, that's the storyline I'm latched onto. Like, is Selecki, is Selecki going to make him pay for that? Or is Drakaklos going to get away with that? The audacity. I mean, they're fighting and each individual fighter, they're the ones entering the cage, so they can choose whether they want to shake hands or not. Uh, but I thought it was audacious. Now, does Drakkar Close parlay that into an equally as aggressive performance? Who knows? Side note, are they going to touch gloves? Interesting. I wonder if, you know, Drakkar Close comes in with that same energy. But this time, Selecki, instead of coming in uh, to touch gloves, this time he comes in like, no, fuck you. I know what, I know what this is about. And I'm sure they'll shake hands after the fight. But yeah, that, I have all these notes. I mean, not all these notes. It's not going to take that long. But yeah, once I woke up this morning, 
and Drakaya close chose violence. Um, that's what this fight is for me now. Fucking, I'm pumped. I'm pumped for this one now. Uh, okay, both men's style, close, dangerous on the feet, both in the cage and at weigh-ons apparently, uh, with his aggressive posing. Seleki is a submission wizard who's now fueled by, once, once again, the humongous uh, handshake drama. Uh, Seleki, when I was going back watching some tape, one thing I did go back and see, Fury grappling. I had a grappling match against Cowboy Cerrone at middleweight, or... 185 pounds which of course he's fighting at 155 pounds here and he got the submission and pretty quickly over cowboy Cerrone. Cerrone, sorry fucking hell <laughs> goodness gracious but yeah he submits guys in fact i picked selecki to win via red naked choke in his last fight and he did and he won me some money and he also made me feel for one minute like an MMA genius, because I said exactly, rare naked choke. Congratulations to me. Uh, and congratulations to Joe Selecki. So he's got it done for me before. He's won me some pocket cash, and I'm a fan. And now I'm very intrigued to see how he approaches an opponent like Drakkar Close. Great stylistic pairing in the lightweight division. Winner moves forward. Sticking on this fight, uh, but moving on from the handshake fiasco. A uh, couple of notes I've got on both men. Joe Selecki wins in eight of his past nine fights. He has eight first round finishes on his record, and he's had a pretty decent run in terms of level of competition. And with that experience, has actually come a bit of good form from Mr. Selecki. Had a split decision loss up against Jared Gordon, uh, but two straight wins since, and really starting to get a wave of momentum behind him. Uh, Selecki beat Alex De Silva by decision, and then uh, the one that I called. The only time where I've actually gone out on a limb and gone with an exact method of submission, uh, submits Carl Deaton the third. Interesting. It always interests me when it's the third. It intrigues me uh, about the Carl Deaton's that came before. Uh, pretty badass to be the third and fighting in the UFC, but yeah, Selecki submitted him. Not sure whether they shook hands at the weigh-ins. I reckon they did. Uh, for Selecki, 13 wins, eight of them by way of submission. That is where his bread is buttered. Uh, there's been a few fights like the Jared Gordon one where if you're a significant strikes lover or enjoyer, uh, probably not the fight for you, but submissions. When he's buttering his bread, that that's where it's at. So that's what you need to know about Joe Selecki. If you didn't already, 30-year-old American plies his trade under the team at Jim O. Oh. Uh, Selecki is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. No shit, that's why he is a submission master. Uh, and really good at controlling the fight on the mat. If he gets on your back, look out. Maybe not your back. I mean, if you're not a UFC fighter, uh, that would be assault, I guess. But yeah, if you're a UFC fighter and he gets your back, look out. He has 50% takedown accuracy. Uh, now, when I looked at Drakkar Close's takedown defense, 
So what interests me here stylistically is that Drakkar Close uh, is the much higher volume striker, throws with a lot more intent. So if this fight does stay standing, we're going to have to see Seleki uh, bring out a few weapons that maybe we haven't seen him use before in terms of the striking. Drakkar Close, like, I'm not fucking shaking your hand, bitch. You need at least 100 significant strikes against me before I'll shake your hand. Uh, so yeah, there's a bit of beef there, and the handshake dilemma, sorry to go back to it. Does Seleki go, alright, I actually want to fucking throw some hands. You don't want to shake my hand? Well, I'm a clench it in a fist, so we'll see. But yeah, closest takedown defense? I mean, 69%, not the most unbelievable, but it trumps, if you're just looking purely at the numbers, the takedown accuracy for Seleki, who is not a big striking guy. So if it does stay standing, I think the pendulum swings in favour of Drakkar Close. Uh, and the handshake mind games as well. Does that further swing the pendulum? Uh, on Drakkar Close, he's a 35-year-old American fighter. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt. Uh, so he's not a black belt, but very handy. Should be able to handle himself. The main thing is don't let Seleki get on your back. Five career wins by knockout for Drakkar Close. Uh, trains at the MMA lab as well, which I thought was worth mentioning. One thing I love uh, about MMA lab, they put together tremendous game plans. Like a lot of the time, win, lose or draw, the fighter has a great game plan and an ability uh, to really kind of stifle an opponent. I think a good example, even though many felt it was a super boring fight, uh, Jared Cannonier, when he challenged Israel Adesanya uh, for the title. And yet yeah, not much happened there. But there's been two fights with Izzy. Uh, I know the Guillaume Romero one was kind of, you know, very lackluster as well. But the Cannonier and Strickland one interests me a lot. As a complete novice, this is just me thinking out loud. Uh, but in terms of the gyms and the coaches, because MMA Lab, that was one thing I noticed, like, Izzy, in terms of not putting on the best possible performance against Cannoneer, and this is going a little bit off track, but this is on MMA Lab, uh, Drakkar Close, uh, where he trains. Uh, but Izzy wasn't able to look like the stylebender. And a lot of that he credited to the game plan that Cannoneer was executing, that John Crouch and the team at the lab came up with. Uh, why I mentioned the Strickland one as well, massive fan of Extreme Couture, who have a lot of fighters on this card, uh, Eric Nixick, unbelievable coach, who also had a great game plan for Strickland. So, yeah, just thinking out loud, but that is something that comes into my mind here. Drakkar Close comes in with a game plan. Did John Crouch say... All right, brother, here's the breakdown. Fucking snub him if he goes to shake your hand. We'll see. Was that the game plan? Uh, and can close execute? It's one thing to have a game plan. Totally another thing uh, to do it under pressure. Four, Drakkar close. He boasts victories in five of his past six fights. Would, would. Uh, that only loss, a knockout against Benil Dariush who's in the main event. So there you go. That was a pretty high-profile fight 
and moment as well. A back-to-back wins leading into this one in Austin. TKO over Brandon Jenkins and a unanimous decision over Rafa Garcia. Drakkar close. Well, I know I've carried on a bit about it, but for me, it all comes down to the handshake. But despite the move, I am going to stick with Drakkar close, my original decision. And tomorrow on Thoughts and Comments, I won't talk too much about the handshake, but we'll see. I'm really excited to see how this one plays out. Uh, now, why am I going Drakkar close by decision? I think if this does play out mainly on the feet, I just think with the crowd, Austin, Texas, what is a crowd like Austin, if I put myself in their cowboy shoes? Um, what, what do you want to see? Do you want to see a guy who's just grappling on the ground, which I really enjoy, but this is Austin, Texas, I got my cowboy boots on, or do you want to see a guy swinging power shots trying to knock his opponent out cold. I think Austin, uh, what they're going to react to and what judges, I mean, judges, there's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day, but these judges have proven they can be influenced. So what are the crowd going to react to? Big shots. Who do I think is the more likely to get the big shots off? Drakkar Close. The thing is, all of that could be totally kaput if Selecki gets him to the ground. That's why I like this matchup. Uh, but yeah, I'm going Drakkar close. Du, du, du. Can't even say his fucking name. Um, and yeah, that's why. Crowd factor. Big shots. Crowd react. Judges. Who knows? I don't even know if this is going the distance. And if it does, fuck knows what the judges are thinking. I never know what the judges are thinking. So we're going to lock it in. And we are going to move on. Drakkar close. By decision. What have we got next? Let me quickly pull it up. Oh, this one. I'm very excited for this middleweight fight, uh, particularly for one fighter, respectfully. That being the 6-0 prospect, Zachary Reese. We've got Zachary Reese up against the 9-5 Cody Brundage. Both men 29 years old. Brundage has seen the pressure the UFC has to offer. He's been in and around the system uh, for a hot minute now. Whereas Zachary Reese is coming in guns blazing, let me tell you. Uh, but this is his UFC debut. So you've got the experienced Brundage really looking uh, to just get a timely win. Oh, it did, he is coming off a win, but it was a disqualification win. And I'll talk a bit about that. But tail of the tape, Zachary Reese uh, at the weigh-ins, just kind of much taller, has a significant reach advantage. Zachary Reese is my one to watch. For this whole card, uh, one to watch, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, I have three tiers. There's Elite Contender, that's someone where it's like, okay, you're fucking, you're not the champion yet, but you have every bit the quality to become a champion. I think the last nomination I had for Elite Contender uh, was Aaron Blanchfield, for example. Uh, and I think, actually, sorry. Caio Barello was one, uh, and fucking what's his name? Frenchman Benoit Saint-Denis. That's your example of an elite contender. A top prospect that is a prospect who's making waves. They're beyond one to watch, but they're not quite an elite contender. 
Uh, usually for a top prospect, I pick people outside of the rankings, still prospect, if you catch my drift. And then there's one to watch. That's where it all starts off for me uh, on the road to being a top prospect. Zachary Reese is my one to watch for this card. I, I really believe there are some special things coming. But let me pay some respect to Cody Brundage and speak about him first. Cody Brundage, nine wins, five losses, three and four in the UFC. I've spoken a few times in this podcast uh, about having a quality gym, a world-class gym. Well, Cody Brundage does have that. Factory X, a renowned in mixed martial arts circles, and Mark Montoya, his track record speaks for itself. So Brundage, his corner hasn't been the problem, even in losses that I've gone back and watched. Every time I see Mark Montoya speak, I'm like, fuck, that's the truth. He's, he's given it to him again. He's given the game plan. Uh, at times, Brundage has just failed to follow through on the plan. Now, for Cody Brundage, four wins by knockout, three by submission, and five first-round stoppages to his name. Uh, as far as a style, if you want to know the main style for Brundage, he can throw hands, uh, but if you're going out-and-out fight style, he is a wrestler, and in his last fight, he broke a three-fight losing skid. Now, it was a de- disqualification against the Australian Jacob Mamba Malkoon, and to be honest, from what I was looking at, I kind of zoned out a little bit because I knew that it was going to end in a disqualification when I was going back and watching the tape, not live. I'm not psychic. Uh, but, yeah... I believe he was losing that fight. He wasn't looking good. Coming off three straight losses, he took that one on short notice. From memory, this fight against Zachary Reese was already booked. Like, this one was already good to go. And Brundage took that Malkoon fight on short notice, which I found interesting, uh, just given that the fight before, Brundage took uh, an opportunity against Cedric Dumas on short notice. And it was the worst showing he's had in the UFC. Uh, so yeah, not sure what's going on in the world of Cody Brundage. But he did get the win. He's coming off a win, disqualification style. Uh, now, the three losses before that. He got floored by some Polish power, Michael Olazacek. He got submitted by Treshawn Gore. That one surprised me a lot. And against Cedrique Dumas, he just had nothing. He had nothing, and if I got in there, like, Brundage would crunch me. Like, I always check myself with that reality. But in terms of a picks podcast and just a general preview, sometimes I have to tell it like it is, and fucking anyone that saw that would say it. I'm sure Brundage would himself. He had absolutely nothing for Cedric Dumas. And that was 15 minutes. In fact, now that I've watched it a few times... Uh, like 45 minutes to an hour of my life that I would like back. Now, he's got a seriously dangerous opponent, Zachary Reese. He just he gets people out of there quickly. For Brundage, he does have a bit of an experience edge. Significant height and reach disadvantage. Uh, yeah, Brundage. Yeah, this is one of those ones Brundage would know. Where it's like, we got a prospect, who's a guy we can give the prospect, potentially favourable matchup. So that's, that's kind of where Brundage is positioned 
but a win completely uh, reverses his fortunes. Our final Brundage thoughts. What goes down? Uh, I think he's going to try to wrestle. That is my hunch. Now, let me talk about the one to watch for this card, making his UFC debut. Zack Savage Reese, an undefeated prospect who truly lives up to the Savage nickname. 6-0 record, all six wins coming in the first round, and he is a Texan. Austin, Texas, baby. It is always bigger in Texas, and the 29-year-old is going to have the crowd right behind him. Now, it's his first appearance, uh, but this looks very much like a showcase, where he's going to come out, uh, plenty of casual observers who just tune into the UFC week in, week out, but don't really have an active interest in like the whole roster and unranked guys and guys who don't have that household name. Well, this is a night where a lot of fans are going to go, or at least the way this is looking like it's set up, a lot of fans are going to see Zachary Reese and go, oh shit, you know, a bit of a star power boost. Last fight like this, in my opinion, if you remember it, uh, Peyton Talbot, Nick Aguirre. Aguirre, my bad. Uh, that was kind of that situation. We see it all the time. This is what this looks like. But Brundage, uh, definitely a quality enough fighter to kind of flip the script. Uh, but back to Zachary Reese, 29 years old, from Texas, four wins by knockout, two submissions, and he's in and out, ready for the UFC. He's just been getting through everyone at a rapid pace on his way to the biggest stage. He's a very well-rounded fighter too, a stoppage specialist, but he, he doesn't lean into one way or the other. He's not out there just swinging fists at the head, just looking for that knockout. He's not just out there looking for the submissions. He has a bit of everything. I, that's why he's one to watch. Now, he's finished all his fights quickly. All six, uh, but I wrote down the last four rather than all his pro fights. So let me go through his last four fights that has led him to this point. Zachary Reese gets a 50 second knockout win under the Fury FC banner, then a 35 second submission win over Aaron Phillips. Uh, so that's two fights, 85 seconds, finished both of them. Done skis. Then again, Fury FC banner, a 52 second knockout win. Dana White's contender series comes calling. He gets his shot. You're not in the UFC yet. And even if you win a decision, you may not be in the UFC. It's the pressure cooker. We've seen it produce stars like Jamal Hill, Sean O'Malley. In fact, we're seeing more and more stars emerge. Guys like Joe Anderson, Brito, Michael Morales. The list goes on. Zachary Reese rocks up on contender series. I don't have the name of his opponent written here. Uh, from going back and watching, I remember he was Israeli. Looked like a bit of a tank of a guy. Uh, but DC was commentating, and the Israeli fella, I do apologize for not having his name uh, on hand here, uh, made just a couple of schoolboy errors. 74 seconds was all it took on the contender series for Zachary Reese to get his contract. So that seems to be the theme. He's a fast finisher, but he hasn't fought somebody like Cody Brundage. What a matchup. What a time to be alive. Uh, the experience of Brundage versus 
just the raw potential and ability of Zachary Reese. This, this is the one on the prelims that has my attention the most. I'll say that. And it's mainly in favor of Zachary Reese. So look out for the first five minutes of this one. Uh, this one, not one to go to the bathroom for. Don't go and get snacks. I mean, unless they're in close proximity. Because the first round is going to be a banger. Final thoughts. Uh, I'm thinking about what a savage Zachary Reese is. I'm going Zachary Reese uh, by finish. Now, I'm locking in a particular method for each fight. So I've gone knockout, but I'm not, I'm not sold either way. Knockout or submission. But for argument's sake, I'm saying knockout. So let's lock it in and move on to the featured prelim. Zachary Reese over Cody Brundage by knockout. And that takes us on to the featured prelim, ranked action between a former champion of the women's bantamweight division and a fighter around a similar age, but who's only now really just getting her big break. You have the 13th ranked Julia Avila up against Misha Cupcake Tate, ranked 12th. Uh, as far as championship picture implications, uh, you've got title challenges like Pena, who's waiting in the wings. I think very soon it's going to be Raquel, uh, Raquel, fucking gee whiz, Raquel Pennington up against Myra Bueno Silva. You've got Ketlin Vieira in the mix, who did beat Misha Tate. Irene Aldana, who won't be fighting for a title next. She just fought Nunez. Uh, but Amanda retiring kind of keeps Irene Aldana still in that picture. This fight, winner, will they move toward that title contention? Loser, drift a fair way back in the pecking order. And in Misha's case, with everything she's accomplished, do you continue fighting if you're not fighting towards the belt? Huge fight for these ladies. They will be occupying the spotlight position in Austin. Let's get amongst it. Uh, tail of the tape. Misha Tate is 37. I'm sorry. I know they say you should never, never say a woman's age or never ask a woman's age. No, it's never ask. So I didn't ask. I just went and got it. 37 Misha Tate is. And I, I never, I've, I don't think I've ever sexualized anything on the podcast and I'm not sexualizing right now. Uh, but for 37, fucking hell, she looks amazing. I'm 27 and I look like shit. Uh, Julia Villa, 35. Uh, she's the youthful one in this matchup. 9 and 2 record, whilst Misha Tate, 19 and 9. And I must say, I'm a big fan of both. Misha Tate, obviously a pioneer uh, of women's MMA. But Julia Villa, uh, Julia Villa, her body of work, whilst it hasn't been a high activity level of late, which I'll get to, uh, when she has been in the octagon, fuck, she brings the thunder. Misha Tate uh, will be giving up a reach advantage in this fight for those who needed to know that. Okay, so what else do I have in the notes? Former UFC champ, Misha Tate. I already said that, haven't I? Uh, now, Misha is returning for the first time since July last year. So both ladies had a bit of a layoff. Uh, and she was pulverized, was Tate, up against Lauren Murphy. But not just pulverized by Murphy also pulverized by the weight cut. 
down to flyweight. Uh, so one of the big talking points going into this has been the fact that Misha back in a natural weight class. Uh, now Cupcake Tate, she returned from retirement in 2021. She's gone one and two, won that comeback fight, a back-to-back losses since, a decision five-rounder against Ketlin Vieira, and then, like I mentioned, beaten up pretty badly against Lauren Murphy. But let's cast some attention to Julia Villa, biggest spotlight of her career. She's back, and she, much like Misha, is ready to make moves within this division. Now, the last time we saw a Villa was over two years ago, with a win, a submission win, over an opponent who loves submissions in Julia Stoliarenko. Uh, now, over two years ago that was, Avila had a child. So, for those who were like, why? She had a child. Uh, okay, Julia Avila, 3-1 in her UFC tenure. She had a win on debut over Penny Kianzad. Then, a 22-second finish, TKO over Gina Mazne. Uh, that was epic. That, like I mentioned, how she brings the thunder, Miss Avila, or Mrs. Avila whatever she fucking goes by. That was epic. That, that was an example of her bringing the thunder. And I reckon she's going to bring it here in Austin. Uh, Ciara Eubanks, the only lady to beat Avila. That is concerning, though. Ciara Eubanks, just one that, yeah, that concerns me. Uh, and then she submitted Stoliarenko last time out. Uh, as far as rankings picture, what's at stake? Top 10, you're kind of working toward that. And Bantamweight, not swimming with contenders. So being in the top 10, I think, means a lot more. Even if they don't get there immediately off a win here, they'll be matched up with someone uh, more likely around the top five. So that's what they're working toward. A championship opportunity for Misha Tate. If she doesn't get the win here, does she stick around? Uh, One thing I love for Misha Tate, Extreme Couture, Great gym, great corner. I think they'll have an awesome plan for this one. Uh, What do we got? Seven wins by submission. A stack uh, of other accolades. Also a former strike force, women's bantamweight champion. And then you have Julia Villa. Going for the biggest win of her career. Nine wins, two losses. Four of those wins by knockout. Uh, As far as stylistic... I actually have no idea what the hell's going to go down. I don't really know what the hell's going to go down in general, because like I said, I'm not a psychic. But this one, I really don't know. There's a lot of what-ifs. And so I'm going to lock in my pick before I change my mind. I'm going to take Misha Tate. I can't really say why. I think the extreme couture factor, having them in her corner and such a great team, leans me toward her, but like I said, I've just been umming and ahhing on the fence, and now that I'm sitting here and I'm ready to move on to the main card, well, I just simply have to give a prediction. I'm going Misha Tate. I checked the betting line as well. She's the underdog. I don't know if I want to jump on. There could be money to be made, but I don't even know. Like, if she wins by decision, I might just be so fucking nervous the whole time. It's like, is it worth it? I don't know. But we're going to lock it in because we have a main card to get amongst. Misha Tate by decision. Also, before we get into the main UFC thoughts and comments, 
Like I said, tomorrow, I said live reactions to the entire card, but I won't keep you much longer. Let us whiz through the matches you're most keen to hear about. UFC Austin, it's time for the main card. Middleweight division. Opening this Texas main card. Let me just adjust my chair uh, and my laptop setup. Uh, now, middleweight division for mine. Most exciting division right now. So much going on. Uh, now Pereira's moved up. Izzy out of the picture. Strickland, the champion. Uh, Drikas Duplessis, the next contender. Comes at Chemayev. Where does he stand? You've still got Cannoneers, you've Tories. Uh, I believe they just announced Roma Delidze up against Nasadina Mavov. You have the Pirate, uh, who just beat Bruno Silva. You have Caio Barallo. It's popping off. It's popping off. So middleweight interests me a lot right now. Uh, but amongst the many names who, who really look like superstars, we have these two guys who could go on to accomplish great things. But right now, they're kind of stuck stuck i guess is the best way i can put it in terms of just putting enough wins together in a row to get themselves to where they need to go we have puna soriano under extreme couture who look that's where the middleweight champion sean strickland trains soriano a knockout specialist and the hawaiian there's still a lot of promise he just he needs to get the wins and the way i look at this matchup against dustin stolzfutz this is the challenge for Puna. It's like, all right, you got to beat a Dustin Stolzfuse. I mean, to be trusted with a lot, you first have to be trusted with a little. For Stolzfuse, this is all about really resurrecting his UFC career. Started with a bang. Dana White's contender series, a TKO arm injury win over Joe Pfeiffer, but the arm didn't just pop out of place. Dustin Stolzfuse, it, it was fair game. Like, he just. He won. But from that point, three straight losses for Dustin to start his UFC career. Decision against Carl Dorcas, who's since been cut. He got submitted by Adolfo Vieira, and he got submitted by Gerald Mearshart. Uh, those two guys are submission wizards, so that needs to be taken into account. Uh, but then Dustin gets in the winner's column. Win over Dwight Grant. That gets Dustin some momentum. He goes into a matchup against Arbus Magomedov in France. Uh, that was last September. Not this year, last year. And he gets knocked out in 19 seconds. So, yeah. For Dustin Stoltzfus, that's where things are at. For Puna Soriano, I mean, you lose to Dustin Stoltzfus. And where does that leave you? So we've got a main card opener. Significant reach advantage for Stoltzfus. Uh, and the way I look at this, it could go two ways. Either Dustin shows up, really brings the fight, and this one goes the distance. Or, if we get the best version of Soriano, uh, I think he gets this one done pretty quickly. I'm going Puna Soriano by knockout, but I've been burnt by Puna before. And I've been hurt before. Uh, but I've talked a bit about, you know, the marketing side and the, the matchmaking and looking at favorable matchups, whether intentional or not. And I always see certain challenges, certain assignments 
And the assignment that I see here for Puna Soriano is, mate, if you want to join the mix, this absolute stack of contenders who are emerging are both guys who've been around for a bit, and a lot of these fresh faces. You gotta get through a Dustin Stoltzfuse, and preferably stop him within the distance. So I'm gonna take Puna Soriano by knockout. Massive night for the lightweight division, and it continues. Clay Guida, the carpenter, a UFC Hall of Famer after that fight with Diego Sanchez, 41 years old, still ticking. I was watching his pre-fight interview. Man, just such a goer. And at this point, he understands the game inside and out. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say I love Clay Guida. I think everyone that is a UFC fan, loves Clay Guida. And we're going to see him here in a very fun fight up against Brazil's Joaquim Silva. Now, Joaquim Silva really rose to prominence in his last fight up against Armin Sarukian. Rocked him, gave him some trouble, but it was eventually put away. Now, for Joaquim, that has happened a few times. He got rocked by Ricky Glenn. He got finished in the first round a couple of times. I don't have it written in front of me. I did, but I made a late decision just to go, fuck it, for main card. I'm not doing notes. I'm just going to speak on what I know. So it seems more natural. So Joaquin Silva, 12 and 5 record, 34 years old, up against 41-year-old Clay Guida, who still is able to compete with the best. And when I talk about the matchmaking, favorable side, things like that, Clay Guida, they haven't been matching him up against guys a similar age every single time like they will give him legit tests really tough tests and clay greeter takes the fights and every time he rises to the challenge Uh, but for clay he's alternated wins and losses over his past six fights he's coming off a loss does that mean he's going to win here uh interesting to tell what i do know this is going to be a very fun fight both guys have ground game clay greeter wrestling his life and for Joaquin Silva, his fucking nickname, Neto BJJ, pretty sure Neto means phenomenal. So phenomenal Brazilian jiu-jitsu, phenomenal wrestling on the Guida side. Uh, for Silva, he's very heavy-handed. Knockout is how he likes to get it done. Seven wins by way of knockout. Uh, but when you look at Clay Guida's record, very durable. He has double-digit uh, losses in the submission column. So with Silva, it's really interesting because striking seems to be his bag, but he's a black belt as well. So does he look to exploit that part of Guida's game and go for the submission? I think Joaquim Silva's going to be a handful here. Uh, But on a side note, any time Clay Guida steps into the octagon, I'm fucking there. I'm watching. You know it's going to be good. So for this one, yeah, I'm just going to sit back, enjoy the fight. Prediction-wise, I'm going to take Joaquim Silva by decision. I still think Clay Guida, he's got a bit to offer. A win here, we may see him on the UFC 300 card. Uh, But yeah, Joaquim Silva, I think coming off that Armin Sarukian performance, he'll be pretty confident. Uh, Guida, he is not, he doesn't live and die by coming out and trying to knock you out, which is where Silva 
has really been caught. So I think this one goes the distance. If it doesn't, I reckon a nice little side call, Joaquim Silva submission. Uh, but I think it does go the distance. I do like Joaquim in this one though. So we're going to lock it in, Joaquim Silva by decision over Clay Guida, the carpenter. Can't have a stacked card without stacked fights. And this is a big one up next. 170 pound action between the UFC's ninth ranked welterweight, looking to defend his position inside the top 10, coming off the first loss of his career up against, let me take a breath, Kelvin Gastelum. Returning to the welterweight division, he's been there before, uh, but had a fair stretch at middleweight, where he had some impressive showings, but also copped a lot of L's. He's changed it up, he's back at welterweight. This looks like the best KG we've seen in years. So very interesting top 10 implications around a welterweight division, which hasn't been popping off. Like I said, the middleweight one is beginning to, but there are some huge welterweight fights to end this year, and I think it's about to pop off essentially. Uh, so we've got a welterweight one here. Uh, now, how to be a wag is probably the biggest chat around the 170 pound division today uh, at the moment. I'll hold off on that. We'll wait and see uh, for the, the next pay-per-view. But you've got 15 and 1 Sean Brady coming off a loss where he got destroyed on the feet by Bilal Muhammad. And I think that's now what a lot of casual fans uh, kind of know him for. Now, Kelvin Gastelum moving down, he was seriously undersized at middleweight, but fuck, he is going to be strong at welterweight. So what interests me a lot, Sean Brady, he's shown with all the wins in the UFC that he has had, he is a very good fighter. Uh, but with that step up in competition, high level matchup against Bilal Muhammad, who I believe is next, had to challenge the winner of Colby or Leon. He hasn't reached that great status yet. Now he talked about the pressure of being undefeated, uh, all that kind of stuff. Kelvin Gastelum, definitely not undefeated, but he seems renewed. He seems refreshed. And he is a threat on the feet. That's the big thing. Brady got rocked by Bilal Muhammad. This is Kelvin Gastelum, who can rock even the most unrockable of guys. Now Brady in his interviews, he's spoken about how he's going to mix it up. So expect him to throw some hands in this one. But fuck, you got to be careful up against Gastelum, who I think is going to pack a lot of power. Uh, but one thing with Kelvin, we did see at middleweight, a lot of those big guys were able to keep him there. Now I think at welterweight, it's going to be a lot harder to keep him down on the mat. And that's what Sean Brady's whole fucking thing is. Submissions, grappling, uh, that's where he does his best work. I also think back to what I was saying about the close Selecki fight, uh, as far as what are the crowd going to respond to? What are the judges going to take notice of? Uh, you're going to more take notice of the big strikes rather than any period of control time without significant damage, unless you're controlling it for large periods of time. And when you look at this fight, who's the fighter who's going to bring really bring the heat 
with their fists. It's Calvin Gastelum. So I think that gives him a major edge. Sean Brady got chinned by Bilal Muhammad. And Bilal Muhammad has serious power, but he is not known for knocking people out. Uh, so for Sean Brady, he's now going up against such a dangerous striker. It, it's about how he handles it. Now for Kelvin, if he just gets controlled for most of the fight, then, you know, even if the crowd's making noise for the odd big strike, if Brady's in control for the large majority, that'll be enough to see it through. Does this one go the distance though? Kelvin, I think he'll be chasing the knockout. Brady, I reckon he'll be looking for the submission. I do think it goes the distance though. And this, I believe, is the closest matchup of the night. I'm actually going to give this one fight of the night. That's my prediction. I think it goes three rounds. I think we see Kelvin really trouble Brady on the feet. But I'm going with Sean Brady, and I'm really, I'm not 100% sure why or how. Like, I can't picture it because the main way I see him winning is with grappling. But you've got to do something with that grappling. Top position, control, it only counts for so much. So that is the biggest thing I'll be keeping an eye on as someone who'll have my money on Sean Brady. Would be stoked, though, to see Kelvin Gastelum win. Whoever does win as well, fuck, huge matchup next. Regardless of who they're put up against, huge matchup. And they find themselves right in the title picture. So Kelvin, he has that name. Fans would be so ready to see him uh, as a main name at 170. But Sean Brady, he's been good. Can he now make that change, make that leap to being a great fighter? I believe he can. I'm going to take Sean Brady by decision, uh, but this is the one, probably other than the Misha Tate fight, that I am most unsure about. So we shall lock it in. Brady by decision. One seventy isn't the only fight uh, that features a very curious and interesting weight change. Davison Figueredo, former flyweight champion, moves up to bantamweight. Uh, I believe that's his best division. Seemed like he was killing himself, making it down to 125. He's put the Moreno past behind him. His flyweight days are done. He gets Rob Font. 20 and 7 are coming off. Look, I love Corey Sandhagen, but just a bit of a snooze fest where he was just totally wrestled and just held down uh, by Sandhagen. That was on short notice for Font. Uh, he had been through a bit of a rough patch, bounced back in a big way with a knockout over Adrian Yanez. And this was a fight that was on the tip of his lips. Tip of his tongue, I guess was what I was trying to say. He wanted to welcome Davis and Figueredo to the bantamweight division. Obviously, Figgy had mentioned many times he had aspirations to move up. Now we get to see it. Obviously, the biggest questions, is Figueredo going to be small for this division? Well, he is short. He is small. Very powerful. I actually think he's going to be more durable because he's not cutting as much weight. I think he's going to be as powerful as ever. And given how dynamic, how explosive we've seen Figueredo in the past, fuck. He could be a problem in the bantamweight division. And I think Rob Font 
Like, this matchup just makes all the sense in the world. For Rob Font, it would be the massive win that gets him back in contention. For Figueredo, what a way to make an impact. Come in against a guy like Rob Font, who has held it down in the bantamweight division, been in main events against guys like Aldo, against Marlon Chito Vera. He lost, but set a record for most significant strikes in the bantamweight division's history. Uh, so Rob Font, I mean, for both these guys, it is a very valuable name to add to your resume when it comes to a bantamweight run. Uh, as far as the way I see it, obviously the biggest question is what, what Figueredo has to offer in this new division. Uh, I'm going Rob Font. I am, by decision. I think whilst Figueredo is going to have a lot of power, and clearly if this one goes to the mat, uh, Figueredo, I think, significantly better and has a massive advantage in the grappling. And a submission, I think, is Davison's best path to victory. Uh, but like Davison, having a lot of power, I think Font is going to be able to show his power here as well. He's not underestimating Figueredo. A lot of people quick to write the former champion off and think that he's just going to be too undersized and get outmuscled in this division. Figueredo, I don't think that's the Figueredo we're going to get. And Rob Font knows that. Uh, so Font will be switched on. He knows he's not just going to be able to outmuscle this guy, uh, that the power isn't going to be so significant in terms of the discrepancy. It's going to be pretty tit for tat. But I think in the exchanges, uh, the technical striking, that's where I give Font the edge. So his key for victory is to keep the fight standing. My belief for Figueredo uh, is that either end it early with some strikes or a submission. Get the fight to the mat. Uh, so when I look at it, and as far as my pick, I think Font can keep it standing. And whilst Figueredo is dangerous, I like the technical prowess of Rob Font, uh, and I also think his power. It's just little moments that we know can win a fight, where if it's really, really close throughout, but Font rocks him uh, and just drops him, even if it's not with a big overhand, even if it's simply with a jab, and it's just you wear him down with jabs, all of a sudden Font pops him with a signature jab, uh, and Figueredo just takes a quick, quick tumble. Even if he falls on his ass, for two seconds and bounces straight back up. The judges, they're like, seems like that's the only two seconds they see in the whole thing. So I think little moments like that where Font can just have more impact uh, with his power, I think it can give him the edge. But again, with this fight, it's the great unknown. We don't know what Figueredo looks like at bantamweight. Rob Font I mean, that last fight against Sandhagen, it was on short notice. But once he was on the ground, defensively sound, but he couldn't get up. So stylistic banger. Uh, I think this one goes the distance. We're going to go with Rob Font. And again, with the preview and prediction, I'm not too much thinking about that. I am really keen to talk about it tomorrow on Thoughts and Comments. Uh, give some actual thoughts once we know the result. Have some answers. Uh, but let's lock it in and continue to move up the card. I'm going to take Rob Font to welcome Davison Figueredo to the division in style with a banger matchup. 
Font gets his hand raised in the end. I move on. We move on. Co-main event time. Uh, I apologise if the audio is any different. My cat. Uh, he has a real love for the office chair that I sit in to record my podcast. So he took the seat because it was warm. Uh, and he just, he looks very comfortable. So I just thought, you know what? You'd be comfortable. I'm going to be comfortable. Uh, I'm laying on my bed. But I apologise if that's interfering with the quality at all. Uh, co-main event. Thrown together on short notice, Jalen the Tarantula Turner. Uh, in the interviews, he said he didn't want this matchup. He's from the same place, uh, same city, same town as his opponent. They are both brothers, uh, if you know what I mean, uh, which you can hear alluded to, uh, not literally brothers, but you know, there's a real respect there. So Jalen Turner uh, had to really cut a lot of weight for the short notice opportunity and... Yeah, in the interviews, I was actually surprised by how much he really didn't want the fight. He's just here to do his job. Uh, I'm a massive, massive Jalen Turner fan. I still believe he has big prospects within this division. Up against 37-year-old Bobby King Green. Really now, at the peak of his powers. So much experience. The man has seen it all. Uh, Originally scheduled to face Dan Hooker, quite a long and rangy opponent. He now takes on the man uh, who Hooker beat last in Jalen Turner. Significant reach advantage and height advantage for the Tarantula in this one. Uh, But Bobby Green, really good at mixing it up. I know he's known for the striking, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him wrestle throughout this fight. And yeah, I think on the feet, you know, Jalen Turner I rate a lot. But Bobby Green... You know, there's not too much you can show him that he hasn't seen. Uh, Although I did go back and look through uh, Bobby Green's UFC career. He's faced a couple of tall guys. uh, James Krause, quite a tall guy, finished him in controversial circumstances. Uh, Tony Ferguson, also quite tall. But he hasn't really faced someone. I mean, there aren't many guys at lightweight, the dimensions of Jalen Turner. Uh, So this in of itself is a really new matchup for Bobby Green, who comes into this one very confident and a win. Well, it places him uh, in amongst the title discussion. So Bobby Green, this is his showcase fight. Jalen Turner hoping to break a two-fight skid, two split decision losses in a row. For the Tarantula, he is from Adrenaline Combat Sports. That is where he trains. A record of 13-7. and seven. He's a monster for the welterweight division, uh, but looking at his seven losses, four by decision, seven by, oh, seven, fucking hell, three by knockout. Uh, so Bobby Green may look to piece Turner up in this fight. Uh, as far as wins for Jalen, all finishes. Nine knockouts, four submissions, uh, and we really saw him get on a roll at one point. After his loss to Matt Favola, uh, he went on a run of five straight wins. Beat Josh Kulabau, second round TKO, then a second round submission over Brock Weaver, then a highly impressive first round submission over Euros Medic, uh, second round TKO over Jamie Malaki, who's one tough customer, uh, and then a hugely impressive finish 
and the best showing of his career to date. A first round submission, 45 seconds was all it took. Showed plenty on the feet as well, uh, up against Brad Riddell. But then, a split decision loss up against Mateusz Gamrot, uh, who really utilized his wrestling in that fight. Jalen maintains that he won, uh, but then another close loss against Dan Hooker. Turner missed weight for that one, uh, so it was kind of surprising to see him get the call up. But as we have since learned, he doesn't want to be here as much. I'm just getting a bit more comfortable. Bobby Kring, Bobby Kring, uh, new fighter created. There you go, Bobby Kring in the building. He he takes any short notice fight, Bobby Kring. He, he's fucking crazy, that guy. Uh, but Bobby King Green from California. Cal- fuck, sorry. I will be honest, I smoked a joint. I, did, I wasn't going to say it, but California, like how else can I explain that? Uh, Bobby Green, King, he is the king from California, or whatever the fucking place is called, uh, which is where Jalen Turner's from too. Pinnacle MMA product, uh, and the king, look, he's a fight finisher himself. 11 career wins by knockout, 9 by submission. Uh, as far as when he's been finished, 4 knockout losses, two submission losses, and he's getting closer to that 50 fight mark in his career. And now in interviews, things like that, Bobby's main focus right now is to entertain, to come out, to give the fans a show, to really deliver bang for buck, uh, and get fight of the night, get paid. That seems to be his ethos. Working out pretty well for him. I had a decent stretch Finished Elliot Aquinta in the first round, then beat Nasrat Hagparast. Would then take a short notice opportunity himself. Uh, a loss against Islam Markashev. Got finished in the first round. Then got knocked out in emphatic fashion by Drew Dober. Uh, and at this point, Bobby Green's around. But gee, hasn't he turned things around this year to become a star? Uh, but in, it, in saying that, for Bobby Green to have even made it to this point, to now be able to capitalize on it. Like, UFC is cruel. You lose two fights in a row, three fights in a row, you're gone. Uh, So the longevity that Bobby Green has really speaks to what a quality fighter he is. Uh, First bout of this year, a no contest, accidental clash of heads with Jared Gordon. Uh, Then, the real showcase for Bobby, where he started to earn his stripes and really break out, despite his age. Uh, the submission third round over Tony Ferguson. Uh, there were a few dramas early in that fight, but Bobby Green getting the finish. Uh, and then an even more impressive finish. Spotlight position. Main event. Bobby Green, having a career year, takes on Grant Dawson, uh, who many believed you know, that, was a, that was the win Dawson was looking for uh, to really catapult himself into title calculations. Bobby Green knocked him out in 33 seconds. They had 25 minutes to work. 33 seconds was all it took. So Bobby Green, at the peak of his powers, Jalen Turner, from the vibe I was getting off in uh, his interview, like, I don't know if he's at the peak of his powers as far as how he's feeling. Uh, So I've gone Jalen Turner by decision. I was originally looking at Turner by knockout. Uh, but I think Bobby, Bobby Green's up for this one. Biggest fight of his career, despite the opponent change. And with a win, I mean, it's got to be a huge matchup. 
Next up, maybe they go back to Hooker. Uh, but Green's so active that by the time Dan Hooker recovers from his broken arm, Green expects to fight another couple of times before then. Uh, so, you know, there's a few guys. The Benoit Saint-Denis. Uh, but I think with the entertainment factor of Bobby Green, if he wins, you want to match him up against the biggest name possible and really create something. Uh, but I'm going Jalen Turner. I'm a massive fan of his. I know that he's lost his past two fights. And my biggest question mark is the short notice part of things. But for the lightweight division, there are a few guys I've kept an eye on. Jalen Turner's one of them. And despite losing two, I still have a lot of belief in this guy. So whoever wins this, huge moment for them. I'm going to take Jalen Turner to get it done by decision. I think Bobby Green puts up an almighty fight, uh, but I think the range, the height, the reach, it is going to play into this one. Turn a knockout. That is going to be one of my side plays, but uh, I also think Bobby Green, he's going to be in there. He's going to be talking shit, uh, and he's very durable. So let us lock in the co-main event pick. I am going to go with Jalen the Tarantula Turner over the king himself, Bobby Green. King Green from California, which is also where Jalen Turner is from. Turner by decision. Saving the best for last, as Benil Dariush and Armin Sarukian cap off the night in style this weekend with a lightweight scrap fueled by championship aspirations. Also got the Austin, Texas factor. So the crowd are going to play into this big time. Uh, I think we are going to see a tremendous banger. 25 minutes or fewer to decide who moves forward back toward championship calculations. This is what it's all about, my friends. Uh, now, Dariush is ranked 4th. Armin Sarukian ranked 8th. Armin looking to break in to the lightweight division's top 5. Tail of the tape, Abanil, 22-5-1 record, Armin Sarukian, 20-3. Sarukian, the younger fighter, 27 years of age, whilst Dariush, the elder, 34. Slight reach advantage for Sarukian and Dariush, the taller fighter, so I guess it kind of cancels itself out. Both guys stylistically tremendous at mixing it up, great on the feet, and both very, very strong once it comes to the ground game. For Benil Dariush in particular, uh, focusing on him for a moment, he found himself just one victory away from a title shot prior to his most recent fight against Charles Oliveira. And now it was an eight-fight win streak that had Benil arguably in a position where he should have already had a title shot, uh, but he needed that one more against Charles Oliveira. Now, having a look quickly at that run for Dariush, the first win was in 2018, November, uh, over Tiago Moises, a decision, then a super impressive armbar submission win over Drew Dober. We know how tough he is. Then Dariush made very light work of Frank Camacho, uh, second, of, second minute of the first round. Two-minute submission of Frank Camacho, second-round knockout of Drakkar, no, I will not shake your hand close. Then, a spinning back fist knockout 
of hot sauce, Scott Holtzman. Uh, in that one, Darius did miss weight, but he also added a really serious career highlight. A split decision win over Diego Ferreira. Uh, but for me, when it really started to become legit, like, okay, Benil, he's almost undeniable now to be a, a top contender, like super close to the belt. I was when he beat Tony Ferguson, decision victory. After that, an even more impressive win over Mateusz Gamrot, who was coming off that win over Armin Sarukian, uh, was in a position to go for the title himself, and it was Dariush who picked up the win. So eight straight wins going into the Oliveira fight. Uh, then he gets finished in the first round, technical knockout, gets chinned by Dubronx. Uh, and it's that kill or be killed attitude with Dariush that unfortunately at the final hurdle, it, it proved a setback. But here he is once again, having another crack at it. Benil Dariush's record stands at 22 wins, 5 losses, with 1 draw. And as I mentioned, he is the 4th ranked lightweight contender in the UFC. Benil is a 34-year-old Iranian-American fighter training at King's MMA under the tutelage of Rafael Cordero, who has played a significant role in getting Benil up to this point. Dariush is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, a grappling most definitely his strongest suit, but also has the Muay Thai chops that he can use throughout the fight. Like I said, both men really good at mixing it up. For Dariush, wins in eight of his last nine fights, so despite the loss, he will still be ever so confident in what he can bring to the table. A quick pro record deep dive for Dariush. One thing I did want to mention, five career losses, four of those have come by way of knockout. Uh, and that's been the way that Armin actually predicted he's going to win the fight. Uh, so if there's a one danger sign, just looking purely on paper, it is that four of his five losses have come by knockout. Now, when Dariush has been knocked out, uh, I mean, it's always been against top-level guys. Alexander Hernandez, maybe not a top-level guy, uh, but he's known for explosive knockouts. A couple of the other guys, Charles Oliveira, Edson Barboza. Uh, so you still have to be able to really put it together to knock this guy out. The thing is, Sarukian, well, he has an unbelievable skill set. Uh, looking at the 22 wins for Benil, five have been by knockout, eight submissions, like I mentioned, grappling, uh, that's where he's his strongest, and nine decision victories. Now let's take a look at Benil's opponent, uh, the one highly favoured as the favourite in this matchup to take that next step forward between a potential rematch, or toward rather, a potential rematch against Islam Makashev, if he is still the champion. For Sarukian, he is ranked 8th, trying to get into that top 5, uh, which is a great moment for him, considering over the last couple of years, he struggled to find guys that are actually willing to accept this fight. Now Dariush coming off a loss, this one makes sense. He's going towards the top five. Uh, and he's really, he's shown a lot throughout his UFC run. For Sarukian, you are not going to get a tougher debut than Islam Makashev. He lost, but by decision. First time in the UFC. After that, Sarukian wins five straight fights. 
uh, all against really decent names as well. Uh, goes on to face Gamrot in that five-round main event. Does lose, but gains some experience there, which, funnily enough, Dariush doesn't have. I'm not really concerned about Dariush and whether he could go five rounds. I know that he could. Uh, but it's actually Armin who's been five rounds. Lost to Gamrot, uh, who Benil Dariush was able to defeat. Uh, and it's been two wins since for Armin, as he's just been looking for guys to fight him. A decision win over Demir Ismagulov, a really handy fighter, is Ismagulov. Uh, and then the win over Joachim Silva, last time out, third round. Technical knockout, uh, but not before experiencing some adversity, which I'm sure Dariush is going to throw at him as well. Pro record for Sarukian, 20 wins, 3 losses. Um, for the Armenian-Russian fighter, he has 8 wins by knockout slash technical knockout, uh, which when I look at this on paper, that seems to be the key against Dariush. 5 wins by submission for Armin, as well as 7 decisions. Uh, as far as the losses, he's been knocked out once. That was in his second pro bout back in 2015. His other two losses by decision. The guys who've beaten him, Islam Makashev and Mateusz Gamrot. So Armin Sarukian, this, this seems like the time uh, where he is really poised to kick on with things. Stylistically, most of the week I was looking at this going the distance, going to decision, but a combination of Armin predicting he'll win by knockout and Benil speaking about his kill or kill, kill or be killed, can't speak English, mentality. I don't think this one's going to go the distance. I think somewhere in there, maybe even in the championship rounds, we are going to see a finish. I expect plenty of grappling, uh, but overall, if there's going to be a finish, I'm going to lean in uh, to kind of the by the numbers which I don't always do, uh, but what I've just read about, you know, Benil, four of his five losses by knockout. Armin, that's what he's gunning for here. I think he can do it, but I would be stoked if Benil wins. Uh, but prediction, before I lock it in, final one of the night, quick check of the rankings and the overall title picture at lightweight. Next up, you have Charles Oliveira, Islam Makashev. Uh, that's pretty much locked in. Justin Gaethje, I believe, will fight the winner of that. So, winner of this. They, you know, are pretty much next in line after Gaethje or, you know, right there alongside him. Who's the other guy right in the mix? Dustin Poirier, who time and time again has turned down this Dariush matchup. Dustin against the winner? UFC 300? Could that be the go? Is Dustin really the, the most logical option? Is that the logical next step? Winner of this faces Poirier. If you've got Charles facing Islam, if you've got Gaethje, uh, who had that huge win over Dustin, and I reckon can wait to get that next shot, well, why not have the winner of this face Dustin? By the time Charles has had his opportunity, by the time Justin is preparing for his chance, well, Dustin, or the winner of this, you've already got yourself another contender in the wings immediately. Then you've still got Mateusz Gamrot, who's beaten Armin, lost to Dariush. He is still firmly in the mix. 
Uh, Raphael Fazeev is just around that same mark. You've got the co-main event winner, Bobby Green, and of course Jalen Turner looking to get back in the mix, and Conor McGregor, Michael Chandler. Uh, a fight that could just totally turn everything we're thinking about the lightweight division on its head. Interesting times. I'm going to go with Armin Sarukian by technical knockout. Uh, I just think the kill or be killed mentality for Benil Dariush, if it pays off here, it's going to pay off big time. Big time. He's going to be so close to the title shot. Uh, but I think in a really tough fight where both guys are going to get tested, I think somewhere closer toward the end of the fight than the start of the fight, uh, I think Armin gets him out of there. So that's my prediction. Locking it in. Final one of UFC Austin. I'm going to take Armin Sarukian by TKO over Benil Dariush. Uh, I will be cheering for Dariush. Cheering for both guys. Uh, but Dariush just, you know, he's put in so many years to get to this point. So it would be good to see him kick on. Uh, but I am going with Sarukian. So there you go. Those are all the predictions. I'm going to get some sleep. The card starts in about seven hours. So there's the podcast for you. I will be back after tomorrow's card with thoughts and comments. Today, the predictions, the preview, the questions. Tomorrow, the answers. And we get to discuss, you know, what is next. A lot of fighters now around this time as we get closer to UFC 300. Pretty much every fighter in their interview. They're bringing it up, you know, like, yeah, I would like to be on the 300 card. And there are some fighters where it's like, psh, the fuck, you want to be on the 300 card? Like, get in line. But, yeah, there's a lot that makes sense. And like I just mentioned, you know, potentially Poirier up against the winner of this main event. So, yeah, a lot to talk about as for what comes next. But before we do that, well, fuck, we got to watch the fights. That's the best part. I say thank you very much for listening. Appreciate it as always. And until the podcast tomorrow, take care of yourselves and enjoy the bang. <laughs>